Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Bryce Hoffman, president of Red Team Thinking and author of the book Red Teaming. As always, I am joined by Marcus Dimbleby. Great to be back here again with you, my good friend. And what are we going to be talking about this week? Well, you mentioned to me that there was something that that you've been thinking about, and I think it would be really interesting for our audience as well. So I believe it has something to do with creating trust and psychological safety in an organization. Does indeed. Yeah, I was thinking after our conversation that we had with Jose recently, our last guest, and you know, the sort of thread throughout all of that was trust, you know, which is ultimately what allows us as humans to operate interactively with each other. Because, you know, if you don't have that trust with friends, family, work colleagues, then you have a real issue with being collaborative, being transparent. And as you mentioned there, this this buzzword that's come around since 1999, when Amy Edmondson first surfaced psychological safety. Wow, has it been around that long? I didn't realize that. I know. I was what I said because it's only become a buzzword. It's like VUCA. Yeah. It's been around since the 80s, but it's only really this last five to 10 years where these things have become apparent. And why is right. that? Because it, it's complex now. It's hard, and therefore we need trust. We need the safety to operate. We need to be able to trust people. And it was just fascinating when Jose was talking about it, how that underpinned all of the capabilities, all of the outcomes that he'd achieved throughout his journey with his team members. It was all about trust. Yeah, that two-way all street. All about trust. It. Yeah. You know what I think it is? You know what I think why it's it's become a buzzword now is because, you know, I, I, I remember several times in my career, I've heard from different CEOs that, that success masks a lot of faults in an organization. Mm-hmm. You know, a Toyota executive told me this uh, after the after the global financial crisis in the mid-2000s. He said, I said, what did you learn from this crisis? This was a couple of years after, like 2010. He said, what I learned, what we learned from this crisis is that we weren't quite as good as we thought we were because we benefited from the fact that our major competitors were a lot worse than we mm-hmm. were. But when they had to restructure and got their game back on, it made us see that we weren't as good as we thought we were. So we had to up our game. I think that the events, not just the pandemic, going back to just the the VUCA world, as we've talked about with Brexit, with, with, with new technologies, with everything that's happened in the past five to 10 years, have really put a lot of pressure on organizations all over the world. And when that pressure comes on, a lot of bad leaders revert to bad behaviors. I mean, we we see this, you know, you and I just were talking about this this morning. I mean, you see this in people like 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 Elon Musk, who who has, you know, acting like a like a 
20th century robber baron, you know, telling his workers to get back to the factory, you know, and stuff like this, you know, and, and he's not the only one. There's a lot of, a lot of CEOs that are re, that are retrenching into old bad behaviors. And that then highlights the need when you, when they do that, you lose that trust. People shut up and stop sharing. The whole organization kind of just hunkers down. And so I think that that's why you see this as so important and so talked about today. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and it's almost as we've moved from sort of mechanical work from the last century and moved into what we call now knowledge work in the 21st century. You know, So the management of that knowledge, and that's as we talk about all the time, it, it's cognitive. It, it's using the pink, the pink squishy stuff in the middle of all this, the people. And if the people in there are trying to transfer knowledge, share knowledge, gain knowledge, then you have to have that fundamental foundational trust to do that. It all starts with trust. Yeah, everything. Uh, and it's the baseline foundation, is it? Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team. The base function is trust. And then above that, you move into our arena of healthy conflict. And it's right. really difficult for Andy people. Grove. Yeah, Intel. Andy Grove indeed. Big, big advocate. Yeah. That, that healthy conflict is what leads to the best innovation. That's what moves companies forward. But Always. you can't have healthy conflict if people don't trust each other. No. And I've seen this so often. You see what, what we call faux harmony. You go into these organizations <laughs> and everybody's yeah. getting along. Everyone's nice. Everyone's kind. And then they're sticking knives in each other's back the minute they turn around the corner. And it's this fake it's like we have fake agile. We've got fake harmony and fake trust. Everyone pretends to get along, but there's no, there's no core to it. There's no real depth to what, what's needed. And I think we've or, lost. Or, or you know what else happens, Marcus? You can get a, a different type of what I would call bad trust. It's not fake. People aren't stabbing each other in the back, but they're being so polite that they're not challenging each oh, other. They're not yes. questioning each other. And one of one of our our biggest clients, several of the executives at this at this company, Fortune twenty five company that we've worked with for a number of years, said this to me early on when we started teaching them about red team thinking, which is that we have, in fact, the CEO when he brought me in said this to me. He said, "What the, what attracts me to your work with red team thinking is this." He said, "When we were when we were on the on the the make when we were." coming up in our industry, fighting for market share. We weren't afraid to challenge each other. We had sharp elbows, he said. It was not polite. You know, it was very Wild West cowboy culture, but that's what led to innovation. That's what led us to become the dominant player in our industry. When we became the dominant player in the industry, when we became one of the largest companies in the world, he said, of necessity, we had to get more polite. We had to learn how to become more polite with each other because you can't have in a company with hundreds of thousands of employees, everybody acting like a cowboy. But he said, the problem is now we've overcorrected. We've overcorrected. So people are so, it, are so worried to challenge each other. That they'll be perceived as not team players, as, as, as rocking the boat, that now we're not innovating anymore. And so what he said I like about red team thinking is it's a way of having a structured healthy conflict. It's 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 moving from divergent thinking to convergent thinking but it's doing it on rails so that it's not personal, it's not political, people's feelings aren't hurt. But you're still getting that challenge. 
And when we started doing red team thinking at this company, that's what so many executives came to me privately and said is that, you know, this has been so good for our organization, not just the work that the teams you're working with are doing, but the whole organization, because what it's done is given people permission to disagree with each other again, but to disagree with each other in an agreeable way. Yeah. And you can only do that if you have psychological safety, but as you say, it has to be healthy safety. Absolutely. And as you say, these tools enable that safety. You know, initially by creating anonymity and allowing people that voice without it coming out of their mouth. You know, you get your opinions conveyed in a safe environment. Not only does that allow you to speak up confidently, it allows people to have their own views without being affected by bias of other people's opinions and input. But it goes back to, as you said, psychological safety means that I can bring myself to work and be me in a professional, provocative way. And that, as you said, that's so lacking this, this dissentful behavior, this disruptive behavior, which is essential. And because it's perceived often as, oh, that's not the right behavior here. We don't do that here. Then, as you said, it stifles innovation. And if you can't disagree agreeably, I mean, we call it the art of contradiction. You know, there's nothing better than quality discourse between two humans with different opinions. I love it. You know, you and I clash like rams sometimes over what we think and what we believe. And same when we've got these people coming to our you know, our training courses. The best discussions we have are when nobody agrees. Right. Absolutely. But it's 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 doing so in an agreeable way. You know, th- and this is this is a lost art, by the way. Long lost. I mean, we see this in business, but we see it in in this country, at least, we see it throughout politics. We see it throughout society. Even in my small community where I live here, this is something that people are talking about all the time, is we've lost the ability to disagree agreeably. We've lost the ability to disagree with each other without vilifying each other. You think back in this country, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill disagreed about everything ideologically. But every Friday, they got together and had a beer together and at a bar in Washington and figured out how to find a way forward together because they didn't hate each other personally. They just disagreed. They, they violently disagreed ideologically, but they didn't hate each other. They didn't vilify each other. And now in politics, in society, and then it spills over into business, everything's tribal. Everything's either you're with me or you're the bad guys. Polarized opposites. Yeah. And you're never going to have a healthy conversation, healthy discourse in an environment like no. that. Which is why, to your point, you talked about, Marcus, how how the, our tools help teach people how to find the skill again. They're kind of like training wheels on a bike. You know, you you need to to, to use them to, to get the confidence to be able to have these conversations and and so a lot of them rely on anonymity because in an environment where you don't have that trust yet, how do you gain it is by protecting people, by offering them a level of anonymity in sharing their ideas. Because two things happen then. One is people aren't afraid not to speak up anymore. But the other thing, the flip side is, and this goes back to what you just said about bias, is people then are able to assess those ideas that other people have separate from the individuals. So it's no longer about like, well, that's a good idea, but he's on the wrong team. So I'm going to violently disagree with it. Or, 
you know, not even be able to assess that it's a good idea because of who presented it. And so doing that, you know, and this gets into diversity and inclusion too, as we've talked about, you know, some people we've worked with, you know, women, people of color say that this, this methodology of using anonymity allows my ideas to be considered totally equally to everyone's, even when there's people who have unconscious or conscious bias in the organization. And then that's a learning opportunity for them because when the best idea comes from, you know, the young black woman in the corner who no one's listening to because she's young, she's a woman and she's a minority, then everyone's like, wow, she has something to share. She had a good idea. And then that allows her, doesn't it, to develop trust of the organization and the people she's working with because these tools allow you to show your value without showing your face almost. And it has that protective anonymity. What I love though, when we do these, you know, day one, we'll do the anonymous utilization. Day two, there's no need. <laughs> we're, having, we're having to enforce it. Yeah, because they realize that, wow, the power. And once they see that yeah. capability unleashed, they're like, what, what have we been doing? Why have we not been doing this before? Why have we just been listening to me speaking all the time or Bob in the corner with his alpha male input? You know, there's 10 of us in here. We've got 10 great ideas and more. Why aren't we doing this? And you quickly see that evolve. And then we have to bring the anonymity back in because, as you say, to stop the biases purely for that reason only. But the safety is very quickly created through that capability, which I, I just find is a, a psychological viewpoint fascinating. And talking of psychology and you're talking about warring individuals, look at two of our favorites, Dr. Gary Klein and Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. Famous frenemies. And that's brilliant. I mean, look at how much these two individuals who agree on a lot of things, but strongly disagree with each other on some really key points in, in, in what they do. These two individuals have advanced our understanding of cognitive science, of human decision making, of how people think in, in profound ways. And they've done it in part because of their disagreement. That's the thing, you know. It, 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 it's, uh, it's John Dewey, the American philosopher, said conflict is the gadfly of thought. It's, it, it, it shocks us out. I'm paraphrasing here. We'll put the exact quote in notes. Shocks us out of sheep-like passivity and spurs us to action, to, to, to thinking. And that's true because if everyone's just going along, you know, I'll, I'll throw out another quote. General, General George S. Patton, one of our favorite folks. If everyone's thinking alike, then somebody's not thinking. And that's the thing is everyone's going along to get along because of the lack of psychological safety, the lack of trust, then you're not, you're not, you're not moving forward as an organization. You're not challenging yourself and you're going to get run over by somebody oh, else who is. You're going to, you're going to become roadkill on the highway. I love that. You are. Yeah. Without a doubt. And this is why great leaders we see, you know, they recruit diverse teams. They recruit people not like them. You know, we so often see like recruiting, like, you know, like promotes like, and then if you get, you get an organization of clones, which is not what you need. Can I Absolutely. jump in here? Because you just hit something that's so important because it made me think, you know, a lot of times we think of this as something new, creating psychological safety, creating diverse things. Andrew Carnegie, the great steel magnet of the early 20th century. He was asked by, I don't remember, Wall Street Journal or New York Times reporter, Mr. Carnegie, you're so, you've changed the way steel is made. You've changed the way business is run. How did you know so much more than everyone else in the world about making steel? He said, I don't know anything about making steel. He said, what I know is to surround myself with the best people, with the best 
ideas and the best knowledge in their in their domain and their swim lane, and then listen to them. And that's what makes a good leader, if you think about it. Yeah, none of this stuff's new. You know, we we feel like sometimes we're reinventing the wheel, or people look at you like, "Oh, you're trying to sell this. You just made this concept up." I'm like, as we talk about in boot camp, this started with Socrates, the ultimate questionnaire man. You know. Don't give any answers. Just keep asking question after question after question. And if you're asking those questions of, I'd say, smart people, but you don't have to be smart, just people. People are all different. The whole purpose of this this idea that we're trying to achieve is to create diversity of thought. You talked about DNI. Don't fill your organization to tick the diversity boxes, but then not include those individuals because you are missing the quality capability that you actually bring them in to provide your organization. Oh, Marcus, you you just reminded me of such a powerful story. Einstein Medical Center, they had a problem with MRSA, with a big MRSA outbreak. And this is a fascinating case study. Um, I was taught about this when I was at the the Red Team Leader course at, at, uh, at Fort Leavenworth at the Command and General Staff College. This is one of the case studies we studied as a practical example of Red Team thinking in action. They had a huge MRSA outbreak. And they brought in experts on, on epidemiology, on infections, and they made recommendations and it improved a little bit, but it wasn't, it wasn't going away. And so they brought in some folks and they, they said, we're going to approach this in a completely different way. We're going we're gonna to bring together discussion groups from every stakeholder in this hospital. We're going to talk to the administrators. We're going to talk to the doctors. But we're also going to talk to the nurses. We're going to talk to the nurses' aides, the candy stripers, as they call them in some places. We're going to talk to the janitors. And we're going to ask them all, what are they seeing? And so, you know, they did this and they met, you know, they met with the hospital administrators, first hospital administrators. And we're, we've already taught, we've tried everything. We brought in experts and stuff. You know, there's nothing that we're missing here that we can see. Talk to the doctors, same things. We know we know this stuff. We've already worked with the the experts on infectious diseases, and you know we're we've done what they said, and it's made a difference, but it hasn't gone away. Same thing with the nurses. Stuff. Then they got they got to the nurses' aides, and one of the nurses' aides said, "There's there's different types of MRSA, right?" She said this very sheepishly because she wasn't an expert. And she wasn't someone who would normally be allowed to speak up because she was in only a group with other nurses' aides and a facilitator. She was able to speak up. And she said, I heard the doctors talking about the different types of MRSA. And the facilitator said, yeah. And she said, well, some are more infectious than others from what I heard them saying. And they're like, yeah. And she said, well, we put people we have these MRSA awards and we're putting people with all the different types in together. Is that a good idea? It's a nurse's aide, no college, you know, hourly, you know, low paid hourly worker. So they said, Oh, that's interesting. They noted that. Then they went to the janitors and the janitors at first were like, why are you even asking us? What do we, we don't know anything about medicine. And they said, the facilitator said, well, we understand that, but is there anything that you've seen differently in any of the wards. And they had a list on the wall of the wards and which ones had the highest infectious rates and which ones. And one ward had a really low infection rate. 
And they said to the janitors, do you see anything, you notice anything different when you're cleaning that ward from the others? And one janitor, you know, immigrant didn't, you know, speak good English, you know, and stuff. And was, was somebody who would never speak up outside of this forum said, well, I empty the trash in there all the time. And there's way more gloves. There's way more gloves in the trash in that ward than there are in any of the other wards. And the facilitators of this exercise were like, uh-oh, what did we just stumble on here? And they went and looked and they started talking to the nurses in that ward. And what they found was that the hospital was only ordering medium-sized gloves because that's the happy medium, right? The problem is most of the nurses had small hands and they found it hard to do their work with these two large gloves. So the head nurse in that one ward out of her own pocket every week was stopping by the pharmacy and buying some boxes of small gloves. What did they find out when they when they when they put every the question to everyone that the nurses in that ward were wearing their gloves 100% of the time and in the other wards they weren't. And they were transmitting MRSA. And the other thing they found out is that in some cases the doctors and the nurses were putting the highly infectious patients in with the less infectious and the infection and people who had the mild forms of MRSA were contracting the more serious forms of MRSA. Those two things, which saved lives, came from a janitor and a nurse's aide in a hospital with some of the top doctors in the country in it. And that's what happens when you create the psychological safety, when you create the trust that people can speak up and then you can listen to them because that never would have happened in the Absolutely. normal course of this. Absolutely. And what tends to happen is, I think Amy Evans, Edmondson refers to the Cassandra effect, where you know Cassandra was the, the daughter of the King of Troy who was warring against the attack and uh, the whole Trojan horse scenario. And they said, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You know, ultimately, she was proved right. And it's... Absolutely. Because she was cursed to know the future, but no one would ever believe her. And, you know, that's a good thing because that's something we warn our graduates about. If you are not careful using red team thinking, you Correct. can become Cassandra. That's why you have to do it in a gentle, yes. collegial nobody way. Nobody likes to be the person who I told you so. You know, nobody gets, you know, pleasure in doing that unless you're a narcissist. You know, it's not a good place to be. So if you can use these tools and techniques to unpick things a lot earlier before they move to that post-mortem phase. And we, we talk about Gary Klein and doing pre-mortems. You know, there's so many capabilities that allow you to future-proof, that allow you to not predict the future, but certainly have a good look around the corner and see what might be around there and look at some of those options that lie ahead. And in doing so, if you've got that trust, if you've got that safety to speak out, and then some of the, some of the favorite sessions I've had with clients is when somebody just comes out with something off the wall. You know, you know, you're challenging them to think different and then boy, they think differently. And everyone looks at them like, did he just say that? But then and I'll go, yeah, okay, you did. Right. Let's 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 riff off of that. What does that mean? If that happens, what could happen then? And then you get a whole different chain of thought because people's brains have physically leapt to a different space. And because they're in an environment where they trust each other and it's safe they start riffing off of things that would never have come out of their mouths 10 minutes earlier. So you get this collective sparring going on intellectually, physically, and verbally, but the outcomes are off the charts sometimes that nobody would have dreamt of coming up with before you walked in that room the day earlier. And, and it's just fascinating, the unleashing almost of the brain 
that we know just 90% sits dormant most of the time and there's this greatness in there and it's how you get that out and you're never going to do that if you don't have trust or the safety to feel comfortable in, in voicing up your opinions and your viewpoints. Exactly. And, you know, this is, this is, again, goes back to one of the reasons why red teaming was adopted by the U.S. military is because it was realized after the, the, the failures in Iraq that people, people who knew what was wrong, who, who knew that we were making some bad moves, didn't feel like they had the psychological safety, the level of trust to be able to speak up. And so one of the key things that when the army set about developing this decision support red teaming capability, one of the key things that they tried to enable with these tools and with these techniques was making sure that people felt comfortable and were able, whether it was anonymously or whether it was openly, to share their concerns, just to to point out that the emperor has no clothes on. Because once you do that, everyone else in the room is like, oh, right, look at that. The emperor, the emperor's got it all hanging out right there. It's (laughs) get that man a robe. Um, And, but, but you need to have that ability to do that. And so, you know, and obviously we've taken these tools and evolved them quite a bit and modified them from that, but we've kept this core capability because in organizations that aren't used to people challenging each other. You know, I, I'll digress here for a second. When I was writing my book, Red Team, and I was telling, I was, I was meeting with Daniel Kahneman, who we just talked about, having breakfast with him in New York, and I was explaining Red Team, thinking to him. He, one of the things that he said is, he's like, I, I was telling him, I was, I was, you know, about my work with the U.S. Army in this. And he's like, I, I'm skeptical about this working in the U.S. Army. He said, I worked with the Israeli army. The Israeli army can do this because in Israel, a lieutenant has no problem going up to a colonel and saying, you're full of crap. You have no idea what you're talking about. Your idea is stupid. And the, and the colonel has no problem saying back to the lieutenant, no, your idea is stupid. And they fight about it and they scream and then they, they, they examine each other's ideas. They have, <laughs> I don't know if it's healthy conflict, but it's productive conflict. It's productive conflict. And he said, that happens every day in Israel, in the Israeli military. He says, that does not happen. And he said, I've worked with the U.S. military. That doesn't happen in the U.S. military. And I said, you're right. It doesn't, which is why it's so important that the tools are created to provide that those safety brails so that it can happen without people being afraid. And that's so important because it's like when you're teaching your kid how to ride a bicycle. You don't put them on a two-wheel bicycle and then let them drive and, and crash into a mailbox and, and, and you know split their head open. No, mm-hmm. you put them on a bike with training wheels. So they get used to this practice of, of, of riding this bike, but it's okay. You know, they're, they're not going to hurt themselves because they got the training wheels on. And then when they build the confidence in doing that, one day you come out. I still remember the day it happened when my dad came out and said, son, today the training wheels come off. And got his wrench out and there and I was like, no, dad, no, I'm not ready. ready. You know, but but then we did it. And next thing you know, you're tooling down the street with the other kids. Well, that's that's how the anonymization in our tools work is in organizations that aren't used to doing this. You you provide these this anonymity provides those training wheels so people can get used to sharing their ideas in a safe environment where they're not even can we be traced back to them when we do this we have online tools that are prevent we even we can't tell who came up with an idea and then but they get used to doing it they get used to sharing 
and, and other people get used to listening to things that are different than they believe. And then they start to see the healthy conversations that come from this. And they start to see the great ideas that come out of the synthesis of these different ideas. And then you don't need, as you said, then you don't need the training wheels anymore because people see the value of it. And now they welcome that difference. Now they welcome sharing what they, hey, I disagree with you respectfully. I have a different perspective. Here's what it is. Okay, I've listened to that. I see your point. I don't totally agree with it, but you have a good point there. The two of us are going to hash this out. Now we have a better idea. And then you exactly. don't need that anonymity anymore. Uh, one of our favorite quotes is it? none of us is as smart as all of us. You know, and as you said, it's it's not that polarity we talked about earlier that seems to be destroying certainly the Western world at the moment. That you know, it's black or it's white, it's hot or it's cold. It's you just nailed it. And I have a different opinion or different thought to what you're considering here. Here's mine. Not that I'm against yours, but if we if we spar off each other now and fuse these together, can we both together come out with a better outcome? And that's a foreign concept to some individuals. But when you start to see it, as you said, it's like taking the wheels off. Once they're off, hey, your dad's not holding your saddle anymore. You are gone with your friends, aren't you? Flying down the road, high speed, confident, no safety net required. And I think if you know, if we've got executives and leaders listening today, think about the damage you do when you bring a big consultancy in and ask them about your organization. What does that look like to your people looking up going, why aren't you asking me? So ask them, just go out, you know, as Bryce said, use anonymity. You've all got the capabilities and tools and techniques to do this. Ask your people some some core questions that are really important to you, to the business, to the environment, and just see what their suggestions, what their input is. It will blow you away, believe me, and it won't take long. And the response and the engagement you'll get when they see you read that, see that, and actually act upon it, they're like, hey, that was my idea. You'll get more and you'll get more and it'll start to spread in a very positive, in a virtuous way rather than a toxic, vicious way. And that's how you create this capability. I really believe in it. It's great advice, Marcus. Hey, let's take a break here. When we get back, we got to do our bias of the week. Are you a red team thinker? Are you the person in the room who is always asking the tough questions? Do you see what others don't? Do you find yourself muttering, I told you so, too often after plans have gone awry because nobody listened to your good idea? If so, then you might be. Take our free assessment and find out. There's a link to it in the notes below. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, as always, when Marcus and I are on without a guest, we are going to do our bias of the week. And the bias I've chosen this week, it really relates to exactly what we've just been talking about. And it's it's political bias. And by political bias, I don't mean politics in the, in the sense of, of Tory versus Labor, Republican versus Democrat. No, I mean, this is something that Professor Bent Flyberg um, who is another expert in human decision-making and cognitive psychology has, de- has identified. And what he means by political bias is the tendency in an organization for people to align the data that they put together, to align the recommendations that they make to what they think the powers that be want to hear. 
either consciously or unconsciously. And it's related to confirmation bias. It's related to a lot of the other biases that we've talked about. But it really gets to what we talked about in the first part of the show, which is that in organizations where people don't feel like they have trust, where they don't feel like they have psychological safety, if the boss says, hey, I think we should build a new factory in Brazil. Let's get a team together to look at that. That team is, is unlikely to present a report that says, hey, we looked at that and there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't build a factory in Brazil. And here they are. No, more often than not, they're going to self-censor themselves, either consciously or unconsciously, and present a report that maybe has some disconfirming evidence in it, but it's going to really double down on the stuff that aligns with what the boss said he wants. And that's a dangerous thing. It, it is. It is. And you see it. And as we say, it's not about being political, but it's about having the ability to see some of these types of bias influencing what's going on in an organization, be that through a strategy, be that through a communications announcement. And you've got to look at these things, you know, when, when you're reading these things, when you're looking at a lady's promulgation on the, on the company website or newsletter, you know, consider sort of what points of view are being represented or not. You know, is it a certain group who's written this under the influence of a certain executive group or a certain individual? And therefore what you're reading and what you're hearing and seeing is highly politicized from an internal perspective, you know, and are there sort of these broad generalizations that are being used to overcome people and sway their opinion? Oh, that sounds like a great idea without picking it apart. And as we go into, you know, our great tool, the assumptions challenge, just what assumptions are being made in this statement? Because as we know, and as we've seen, you put a tall, good looking, swarthy CEO in a nice sharp suit and colorful tie, they can deliver anything in such a great way and with such great oration, people will go, wow, let, let's follow him. Well, that's halo effect. That's another bias. That's, that's, that's a, yeah, oh, absolutely. The halo effect. Yeah. But the way they frame these things and the words they use to politicize and make people's perspectives sway either way, it's a dangerous place to be if you're not challenging and thinking. It is. And it's often not conscious, though. It's often just it's the pressures of the organization. So one of the things that and I want to get Professor Flyberg on the show as a guest. Um, oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So one of good. the things that he talks about in his papers, he studies major, he did a big study on major projects. And he found, found out that, you know, if you're looking at a, at a project like adding a new terminal, say to Heathrow, um, once that's out there and once the senior leadership has, has put that forth as a target, all the data that starts to be collected starts to, to endorse the idea that this is a good idea to support this idea and stuff that is surfaced often by lower level people who say, Hey, you know, I, I think there's some reasons this is not a good idea. Um, or at least as it's written now tend to get swept aside and say, no, no, that's not, you know, don't worry about that. Let's, let's focus on the task at hand. Let's focus on the task at hand. How many, how many times have we heard that in organizations? And, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's conscious, but sometimes it's unconscious because it's it's self-preservation, right? If people think that they're going to, to, to get whacked over the head by challenging the boss's good idea, they don't need to conscious, they're not going to spend any conscious time saying, oh, how do I skew this data so it supports the boss's idea? They're just going to, as a self-preservation technique, start to do that. And so the reason why Professor Flybert calls it political bias is because it's the pressure that's exerted on the decision-making process 
by the internal politics of the organization. It's a powerful thing. It is very, very. And again, it just goes back to having, I guess, the trust in yourself to have that assessment, have that objective assessment of what you're being told, what you're reading, what you're seeing, to just question it. Because back to Socrates, question everything. Einstein said that, you know, look at these things and go, what am I seeing? What are they wanting me to see and how am I feeling? What can I do to analyze this in more detail? Who can I talk to? Can I turn to one of my team members and, hey, I'm thinking this. What do you think? They might have a complete different opinion or they might be swayed like you are because of the content of what they're being fed through that data, through that information, through that newsletter. But the hardest thing to do is speak truth to power, as we see time and time again through history. I mean, look at look at Galileo is a, you know, is an iconic example of someone who challenged the status quo at times, challenged the political structure at the time, which happened to be the, the, the church and said, look, you know, I, this view of the universe of, as, you know, having the earth in the middle and everything else, you know, is, is, you know, in fixed places around it isn't true. And, and, you know, ultimately got to the point where his head was on the block and he, and he agreed to recant in order to be able to continue his work. But I love that as he left the tribunal, he said under his breath, but audibly enough that people there heard it and yet they move. <laughs> I love that. And yet they move. You know, he said, I, I agree. I come here and I say the planets are fixed and all this stuff. And, uh, and then, but as he was leaving, he said, and yet they move. <laughs> but you have to have, you know, look, yeah. we, we're not calling on people to be Galileo. No, We're not calling on people to be Socrates and, and, and drink the poison. What we're calling on people to do is just check yourself and ask yourself, am I unconsciously falling victim to political bias? Am I skewing what I'm sharing because I'm because I'm bending it to fit what I think the boss wants to hear. And then we're not, we're not asking people again, we're not asking people to go on a suicide mission to have a conversation with themselves or with their team and say, is that what I want to do? If that's what you want to do, if that's, you know, if you're, if you're trying to protect your job, we're not trying to get people to become martyrs here, but we are trying to get people to just know that that's what you're doing. If that's what you have to do, at least acknowledge that that's what I'm doing because of out of self-preservation. Yeah. Don't delude yourself though, into thinking that it's the right answer, because that will lead you to make errors too. And ask yourself, is it worth it? Is this, is this going to create such a problem for the organization that I'm going to regret having gone along to get along later? And do the, do the math in your own head about how much it's worth speaking up, how much it's worth taking risk. And, but also, again, and this goes back to the, to the red team thinking tools, is there's you can you can disagree in ways that are less confrontational, less likely to provoke a negative reaction, um, and that's that's an important skill to cultivate as well. It, it is, as Ellie likes to say, you know, it allows you to park your ego and your emotions at the door and have those you know considerate conversations where you can comfortably think comfortably speak up, comfortably speak out. And if you're thinking bizarre thoughts, you, you want to get them out there and have them challenged, picked apart or supported. And likewise, if you see something you don't understand or buy into, you know, you, you've got to be able to challenge that and speak up. And the leaders out there who are enabling their people to do that, 
we're seeing it on the news. You know, we're seeing it in business papers, magazines, LinkedIn, those organizations that are getting that this is all about their people. And the best way to get the best out of your people is to enable them, to engage them as we talk about diversity of thought. And if you're stifling that through whatever biases or for whatever top-down behaviors, then you're going to be on a losing streak and it doesn't end well. You know, we've seen that as well. And that's the thing is sometimes when you have that honest conversation with yourself or with your team, you realize that your self-censorship is not actually required. A lot of times people go along with what the boss says and questionably skew their results to match what they think he or she wants to hear, not because they're terrified about losing their job, but just because they've done that in the past for so long that that's the learned behavior that they've ingrained in themselves. So sometimes you have this question and you say, well, I see a problem with this. Is this, is this worth going to the boss about it and sharing? And then you say, well, actually, yeah, you know, my boss would probably value this. But a lot of times we just don't have that gut check. We don't have that conversation. And if the answer is no, I'm not going to do that because, because it would be suicidal. Again, we're not advocating that. One of the first rules that I learned at Fort Leavenworth is, is don't red team without top cover. In other words, don't go and challenge the boss's plan unless somebody in the senior leadership team has asked you to do that, is backing you, has your back on this, because that's a suicide. Absolutely. But a lot of times we imagine, we magnify the threat greater than it is. Yeah. So it's about just having that. There's nothing wrong with these biases. Like I say, it's a, lot of, a lot of these biases exist for self-preservation reasons. The problem is when we don't acknowledge and we don't identify them, we don't know that they're affecting us. That's it. It's just, I said, there's how many, there's 100, 200 plus biases out there. We can't not avoid them. I say, I say to the, the classes, if you have a brain between your ears, you will be affected by a bias of some sort constantly. Yeah. And and they will change depending on the circumstance. But as you said, it's, it's just recognizing, A, they're at play, B, the impact they're having on you as an individual, and see what are they having on others because they may be affecting someone else very different. And if somebody suddenly changes one day, like, hey, Bob's normal. What's wrong with Bob? He's not normally like that. There may be a bias at play that day that wasn't there yesterday, or he may have read something in the morning. We see how social media is built to impact us. It's built to sway our opinion. We know this. It's a fact. And if you're not aware of that, if you're not paying attention, it can take you down some, you know, some paths where you don't want to go. But as you said, it's okay. It's just normal to be able to discuss it, get it in the open and have these conversations as we often do with these tools and techniques. And if you're a leader, it goes back to what we talked about in the first half of the show. If you're a leader, you should be thinking about how can I create trust in my organization so that the people who work for me aren't just telling me what they think I want to hear. How can I create psychological safety in my organization so that people are willing to speak up when they see that something's wrong? And that's how you as a leader can prevent political bias from ruining your organization, from leading you to make mistakes as a leader because your team sees that you're walking off a cliff but they're scared to tell you that you're that, that you're about to do that. Wouldn't you rather have your team say, "Hey, you know, careful. There's there's a steep cliff ahead." 
before you, you know, you're going to make a lot bigger fool out of yourself if you tumble off that cliff than you are if you say, oh, thank you for pointing that out. I'm going to adjust my course. So that's the challenge I would throw down to leaders is think about how you can create trust in your organization, how you can create psychological safety in your organization. And if you need help doing that, think about how you can use tools like Red Team Thinking to provide the training wheels to develop that in your organization. I think if you do that, it'll go a long way to countering political bias and a lot of other biases in your organizations. You'll make better decisions, you'll make them faster, and you'll be more successful as a leader and as an organization. Absolutely. Great words to wrap up on there, Bryce. And as you said, doing all that, you're going to engage your people as well. And once you do that, you are off to the races. That's all you need. All right. Brilliant. Great to catch up. Well, good to see you. Get off to the races. (laughs) I will, my friend. Until next time. Look forward to seeing you soon. Take care and keep asking the tough questions. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? Wins.